So once again, we are continuing our series called The Battlefield of the Mind. And specifically, we're going to be talking about overcoming condemnation. I'm, I'm hearing a little echo here. Uh, so the, the devil, as you know, is incredibly crafty. He's smart. He's crafty. He's a schemer. And, and what, he, what he does is he lies to the believer that when a believer falls into a cycle of sin, the devil wants that believer to think that he's ashamed, that he's condemned, and that somehow he's lost his salvation. And, and what happens to that believer is they often become very discouraged, and then at some time they fall away. Now, on the flip side of that, what the devil does with an unbeliever who's caught up in the same cycle of sin, the devil makes him feel secure that, that he's safe, that he is going to heaven in spite of the fact that he's unsaved. And so there's two sides of the coin. The devil makes the believer feel condemned. The devil makes the unbeliever feel safe while they're in the same cycle of sin. And so today, what I want to talk about, the nature of salvation. And I want to talk about the foundation for eternal security. And then I want to answer, if we have time, hopefully, to answer some objections that, that some have that a believer cannot lose his salvation. But in all that, Paul says, test yourself to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. Because Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's three lies that the devil believes to try to destroy the believer's confidence. The first lie is this. Well, there we go. The first lie is, how can you be saved if you continue to sin? Second lie is, how can you be saved if you don't feel saved? Now, you notice that these two lies are posed in a question. Remember, the devil said in the Garden of Eden, did God really say that you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die? And, and so the devil always tries to challenge the word of God with a question. How can you be saved if you don't feel saved? Salvation is not about feelings, it's about fact. And finally, the biggest lie the most condemning lie, the most discouraging lie, if believed, is that you are shamed and condemned. So let's look at what the, the scriptures say. But first, I, I'm going to invite you to join with me in a word of prayer. So Papa God, as I come before you, acknowledge that apart from you, I'm less than nothing. You are the teacher. And I invite you, Holy Spirit, to open our ears that we might hear. I ask, Lord, that every word that is coming from these lips would be inspired by you and that you would breathe life into your word. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here who does not know you yet, that today would be the day for their salvation, that they be brought out from death into life, that they be born again, receiving your divine nature. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. So the first thing I want to point out is the nature of salvation. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. The first thing that I want to point out is who we were before we trusted Christ. Paul makes it absolutely clear that he says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And that word dead simply means to be separated. In other words, he's saying every person who was ever born physically in this world is born spiritually dead. They are a spiritual corpse. Now, we all know what a physical corpse is, do we not? For instance, uh, just recently, I, I did a funeral. And the person laying in the coffin is not there. They, they, their soul, their spirit has been separated from the body. And so what we have is a lifeless corpse. And I often call that our earth tent that houses who you are. In other words, if you were to talk to that corpse, it could not respond, could it? In fact, you could shake that corpse. That corpse will not respond. In fact, you could slap that corpse, and that corpse will not respond because the essence of that person is not there. In the same way, Every person born in this world is a spiritual corpse, which means apart from a miracle of God, you could not respond to spiritual things. So for instance, let's just take a physical corpse. The only way that physical corpse could possibly respond is if God did a miracle and raised him back from the dead. Amen? The same is true for every person born. They are born a spiritual corpse and cannot respond to God unless God somehow does a miracle in their life to make them born again. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for it is foolishness for them, for they are spiritually discerned or spiritually dead. In other words, they are alienated from God. They're hostile to God. They, they're, they're, uh, they have a veil over their eyes. In fact, Paul again says, he says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, every person born is born a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. It means that every person born is under the enslavement of the devil who is called the prince and power of the air. He is called the small g, God of this world. They, uh, the devil controls them, manipulates them, enslaves them in sin and bondage. Every person that is born is in that same situation. 
In fact, he goes on to say, all of us, without exception, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following his desires and thoughts, like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, you got to remember that Paul was a Pharisee when he was unsaved. He was a religious leader. In fact, he was called a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a religious Jew at the top of his game. He had the Torah memorized. He, he was probably one of the most powerful religious leaders of his day. And he says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. In fact, he says that we gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. Now you wonder how a religious leader gratifies the cravings of his sinful nature. Well, he gratifies the cravings of his sinful nature by his pride and self-righteousness. Now, for other people, they may gratify the craving of their, of their sinful nature by fear and anxiety, or by lust or greed, or by hostility, hatred, and murder, and violence. But every person born is born alienated, separated from God. They are enslaved by the devil. They are manipulated by him. And they gratify the cravings of their sinful nature as the, the, the God of this world, the devil, manipulates and controls them to satisfy their flesh. Does that make sense? Now watch this. But, you see that little word? I love that little word, but. It's a contrasting, connecting word. So it says, but in contrast to what you were, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. In other words, it is God who chased you down. It is God who awakened your heart to respond to his kindness. Because if God didn't awaken your heart, you wouldn't be awakened. You'd just go about gratifying the cravings of your sinful nature. You see, salvation is not a man work, it's a God work. It's just like in the Garden of Eden. You remember that Adam and Eve, they sinned and they ran and hid themselves from God. And it was God that chased them down. We can't say that we were smart enough. We can't say we were wise enough. We cannot say that we were strong enough. Because the truth is, it is impossible for a dead person to come to life on their own. Does that make sense? But God made us alive with Christ. Now watch this. It is by grace you have been saved. And the word grace means undeserved favor, that God has poured out his favor on you. He has poured out his mercy on you. He has poured out his love on you, even when you didn't deserve it. Even when you're dead, even when you're rebellious, shaking your fist at God, no, leave me alone. Now, some of you know my testimony, know that I fought really hard and I lost, thank God. <laughs> He's the one who draws you. In fact, it says in, in John chapter 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him, and I will raise him up on that day. Salvation is a God work. 
By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated him with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, the moment you were born again, that God put you in the heavenly places, that you have now been given the same authority as Jesus over all demonic realms. You've been set free from the kingdom of darkness. You've been given authority with Christ over all principalities, all powers, all rulers, all spirits and forces of darkness, you are now over them. You now have power and authority to defeat the forces of darkness. Whoa. And the reason being is because you've been born again, you've been adopted in this family, you were a son of God, even you ladies are a son of God with all the rights and privileges of sonship. Now watch what happens. It says, in order... In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, in other words, there is nothing that's more incomprehensible than God taking those who have hated him, who followed their own lust and, 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 and satisfied their own desires, who are hostile to him, enemies of the cross, and he made us alive so that we can have a, a communion and union of, of being in his family together. Folks, that's a good deal. <laughs> Holy cow. That once we're enemies of the cross, in gratifying the cravings of her sinful nature, and he awakened our heart to respond to his kindness. And now we are children of God, seated with him in the heavenly places, far above all demonic realms. That's incomparable grace and kindness. And then he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through what? And this is not from yourselves. What is not from yourselves? Faith. Faith is a gift from God. Even the faith that you exercised is a grace gift from God that God awakened your heart. He imparted to you faith to respond to his kindness. And the moment you respond, you are born again. You received his divine nature, seated with him in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. In other words, you are safe and secure in the arms of Jesus. You're allowed to even shout hallelujah here. Come on. <laughs> so, by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one could boast. You know what that means? That you cannot save yourself. There is no amount of work you could do to save yourself. There's no amount of work that you could do to keep yourself. It is all grace. It is all his mercy and kindness. Salvation is of the Lord. And so what is the foundation for eternal security? Can we possibly lose it? That's the question that we're going to answer this morning. In Titus 3, 5 through 7, it says, He what? Saved us. You notice it doesn't say, and you saved yourself because you were really wise. You're really amazing. 
No, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. There's nothing we could have done to save ourselves. But it's according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it was his mercy. It was through the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit awakened our heart and washed us by his own blood, forgiven us our trespasses, and then regenerated us at that instant, meaning we were born again. We received his divine nature. We are awakened from the dead so we could respond to him. Wow! And then he renews us daily by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that has saved us. It is the Holy Spirit that awakened us. It is the Holy Spirit that renews us daily. As the Holy Spirit empowers us and leads us and guides us and renews us and reforms us continually. It's all a work of God. Wow. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit doing what? Guaranteed. Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And in fact, in Ephesians 4.30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. And so here he, he mentions that you are marked in him with a seal. Now, during Paul's day, the Roman government used a seal to protect all their documents. In fact, what would happen is, let's just say the governor, if he was going to send a letter to, say, Caesar, what he would do is he'd take that, that document and he would seal that parchment with wax and he'd put his signet ring. And in that signet ring, it would seal that. It was a seal of ownership that belonged to the governor. It was a seal of identity. That's his mark. It was a seal of authority, meaning it, it was a, a document of official business and finally, it was a seal of security because if anybody messed with it, opened it, or destroyed it, they were either put in jail or, or they would be killed. And, and so Paul is using that because the people of his day that were reading this letter would understand, wow, this seal is a seal of ownership that God has purchased us by his blood and we belong to him. It is a seal of identity that now I, who have this seal, I'm identified as a son of God. It's a seal of authority because now my Lord has made me his ambassador to represent him in this world. I have authority to bring the gospel worldwide. And then it's a seal of security because no one is greater than God. Amen. No one can break that seal. We are sealed until the day of redemption. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth. Ha! We are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power 
until the coming of salvation is ready to be revealed in the last days. Do you realize that it is the power of God that protects you and your salvation? Because salvation is not dependent on what you do or don't do. It's not dependent on whether you sin or don't sin. It's not dependent on whether you are a pastor or someone who works in childcare. It's dependent on one thing, the precious blood that has been shed on your behalf and that God awakened your heart by his kindness, gave you and imparted to you the gift of faith to respond, and then you were born again, you received the seal of the Holy Spirit that marks you as his. And then you are protected by the power of God that cannot be broken. Did you get that? This is really something. All right, what's the foundation for security? First, it's the word. 1 John 5.11 says, and this is the testimony. God might give us eternal life. Is that what it says? God has given us eternal life. You see, it's not dependent upon how you feel. It's dependent upon what he says. That you have it. If he has awakened your heart, you're born again, you have eternal life. It is yours. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. It's good. It's done. It is a done deal. Whoever has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You either have it or you don't have it. There's no fence It's either you got it or you don't. All right. Secondly, forgiveness. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you, that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay, so I want you to notice verse 2. It says, he is the atoning sacrifice. That word in the Greek is propitiate. He is the propitiation. It means that he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. What Jesus has done, he has forgiven our sin, past, present, future. Did you get that? That means, guess what? It's not if you sin, it's when you sin. Can can we raise our hand and say, do we sin? You you know, I love sharing the gospel with a lot of people. And and, and oftentimes someone will say, but you know, this this believer over here was telling me about Jesus and he did this, this, this. And I said, yeah, guess what? I do that, that too. We're not perfect, but we are forgiven. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is not a one and done. The cross is everything, past, present, and future. Our sin has been satisfied. And that's exactly what it means that to propitiate our sin has been satisfied by Christ, that we are no longer objects of wrath. Wow. I don't know about you, but I I get pretty torqued up with that because I had a lot to be forgiven of. All right, some of you were pretty close to be in sainthood, not me. I was on the opposite side. <laughs> I was so bad, I didn't think there could be forgiveness. I'm serious. 
You know, so when I read a passage like this, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I get pretty excited. My sin has been wiped clean. I have been set free from Satan, sin, and death. I've been adopted into his family as a son. I have a seat at his table where I could feast with him and fellowship with him. I could walk and talk with him like Adam and Eve walked and talked with him in the garden. I am no longer alienated. I am safe and secure in my father's grip. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said in John 10, 27? He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace where we now stand. Now, I want you to look at that word justified. It's an amazing word, and it simply means to be declared righteous. And it carries this idea. Let's just say that you were driving down the road you're doing 75 and a 25, you got pulled over, and you go to before the court, the judge says, how do you plead? Guilty as charged, your honor. I got caught, I got busted. Well, the judge has a son. He comes into the courtroom and says, your honor, I will pay that debt. And so the judge exonerates me pardons me, declares me righteous, the debt has been paid by another. The idea is this, the moment that God awakens our heart through faith, he declares us righteous. From that moment on, we're no longer called a sinner again. We are called saints, which means holy ones. That means that if you are born again, God looks at you as absolutely perfect. Wow! Righteous, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's amazing. You see, here, here's what the devil does. You, you sin, the devil says, oh, you dirtbag. What's the matter with you? Gee, how can anybody love you? How can you possibly be saved? Well, my salvation is not based upon what I do or don't do. My salvation is not even based on how I feel at the moment. My salvation is based on what he has done for me, that he has shed his blood as the atoning sacrifice for my sin, and that he has declared me righteous. And so every time he looks at me, he looks at me with the righteousness of Christ, and every time I sin, what I have to do then is to enjoy fellowship, is run back to the cross, saying, Papa, forgive me, I, I, I plead your blood over my life, thank you for the cleansing you provide. That's why the cross is always relevant. Because we keep going back to the cross for cleansing. It doesn't affect, sin does not affect our standing with God. It affects our fellowship with God. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So we're going to answer an objection. I got 20 minutes to do this. And I think I could accomplish it in less. So 
There, there are some churches that preach you could lose your salvation. And, and what usually happens in those churches that preach you could lose their salvation, oftentimes you, you'll see, and by the way, before I came here, I used to go to Pentecostal churches and some other churches that preached you could lose your salvation, and they would say, uh, they would create an insecurity, right? And, and so it, it was not uncommon for the same people to keep running up to the same cross, the same altar. How many people have ever seen that? All right, it happens all the time. And the issue is they're insecure. They're caught in a cycle of sin and they believe they're shamed and condemned. And so they keep running back to get resaved over and over and over and over again. Now watch what this says. It says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward towards maturity. All right, what's the issue here? Maturity. Be taken forward to maturity. I'll explain that a little bit more. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith towards God and instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible to those who once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age, coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. So verse four in the beginning is impossible to those who fall away to, brought back, to be brought back to repentance. Their loss, to their loss, they're crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So let me just say this. If this passage is talking about salvation, the one who fell away cannot possibly come back, if that's what it's talking about. But it's not talking about that, and I'll explain it. First of all, the whole issue of Hebrews is a warning against Jewish Christians from falling back under the law, going back under the law, and for falling back in unbelief. And you get to, to chapter 5. Chapter 5 says this. The writer of Hebrews says, You are infants. You are not mature. You need milk, not solid food. By this time, you ought to be teachers of the, of the word, but, but you are not. He says, Solid food is for the mature who by practice have discerned the difference between good and evil. So chapter 5 is all about Paul, or rather the writer of Hebrews saying, Look, your infants press towards maturity. Then we get to chapter 6, and he's saying, hey, let's move forward from the elementary teachings of the world. Let's, let's move forward from the elementary teachings of the word. And he mentions what the elementary teachings are. He says, let's press forward towards maturity, not laying again this foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith towards God, instruction of cleansing rites, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Those are the foundations of the faith. Let's move past the foundations of the faith. Let's move forward towards maturity. Are we on the same page? Okay. Then he says, by the way, let me say this. He is talking about a genuine believer. Okay. He, you know, there are some people who say, oh, it's really a guy that was close to coming to Christ. He, he felt the Holy Spirit, but then he fell away. No, it's not talking about that. It is a genuine believer. And he says, it is impossible for those who once been enlightened. 
A genuine believer has been enlightened. A genuine believer has tasted the heavenly gift. A genuine believer has shared in the Holy Spirit and the heavenly gift of salvation. He has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, he's experienced miracles in his life. He's experienced all the wonders and the glory of salvation. It's a genuine believer he's talking about. Okay, but if he falls away, to be brought back to repentance. So what's he talking about? If it's not salvation, what's he talking about? Well, usually when people use this passage to demonstrate that you can lose your salvation, they fail to recognize that the writer of Hebrews didn't finish his thought because verses 6 and 7 actually answer the question and interpret what he's saying. Okay, you ready? He's going to give us a parable here. He says, land that drinks the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop useful for whom it is farmed, receives a blessing from God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless. Now watch this. It's in danger of being cursed. Did it say it's cursed? No, it's in danger. And in the end, it will be burned. What's being burned? The thorns and thistles. Okay, so here's the parable. The land refers to the heart of the believer, the soils of the heart. The rain refers to the Holy Spirit. And so the person, the believer, that is drinking of the Holy Spirit, being refreshed by the Holy Spirit, produces a crop, or you could say produces fruit. And that person receives a blessing from God. However, the person, the land, the person that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. And at the end, the thorns and thistles will be burned. Now, there's a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that explains this passage, and I'm going to bring it all together. And now, am I confusing anybody yet? Okay, you're all on board. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3 says, Paul says this. He says, let no one build on a foundation other than the one that is built on Christ. All right, if anyone builds on this foundation, gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, their works will be revealed by fire. All right, and uh, any work that is burned up, they will suffer loss yet they will be saved. Okay, so the wood, hay, and stubble refers to worthless works. And these are works that are done in the name of Jesus by the, by the flesh for the glory of self. Worthy works are represented by gold, silver, and precious stones. These are works that are done in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Okay, so any work, and that's what we're talking about here, any work that is done by the power of the Holy Spirit, the land that drinks the rain, any work that is done by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ produces fruit. He produces a crop that's useful, and he receives a blessing from God. He's rewarded. But any land, any person that is producing worthless fruit represented by wood, hay, and stubble, these are works that are done in the name of Christ by the 
by the strength of the flesh for the glory of self, these produce thorns and thistles. It is worthless. It is in danger. The person's in danger of being cursed, but they're not cursed. They shall be saved, yet as by fire. In the end, the thorns and thistles are burned. So the whole passage, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, through eight is not talking about salvation he's talking about the believer that has fallen back in unbelief this jewish believer wants to put himself under the law and he, and paul or the writer of hebrews is saying look those works are worthless he said move back in faith it is impossible to be renewed back uh, uh, is impossible to be renewed uh, to repentance while you're in a state of unbelief And so the idea is, let's press forward toward maturity. And in verse 9, he says, I have better things to say about you. (laughs) He says, this is the warning, but I have better things for you. I think better things for you in this. And the same is true for us. You know, every one of us, every one of us does things that we wish we don't see. Or don't do. You know, one of, the, one of the songs I used to listen to, um, it was done by Sovereign Grace. And, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago. It says this. It says, in my heart, there's a treason that poisons all my love for you. And that's true for all of us at times. Every one of us at times, we do things that we regret doing. We say things that we wished we didn't say. And the enemy is right there trying to say, you don't deserve salvation. How could you possibly be saved? Look what you've done. You've done it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And and, and then you start thinking, am I really saved? You know, it goes back to this. Have you come to that place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you die today, you're going to heaven? Yes or no? You got to answer that right now. Do you, are you, do you know that you know that you know that you are safe and secure through Christ? Do you know that? The second question is this. If you died today and Jesus said, why should I let you to my heaven? What would you say? If you say, well, because I'm a good guy, that's the wrong answer. If you say I'm a churchgoer, it's a wrong answer. If you say, look at all the things I've done, it's a wrong answer you got to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said this, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, But Lord, did I not do miracles in your name? Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? But I will say to him on that day, Depart from me, I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you and you fell away. He said, I never knew you. And that's the idea. Jesus said, you must be born again, right? Paul himself said, test yourself, see whether or not you're in the faith. Here's a good test. If you can sin without impunity, if you can gratify the cravings of your sinful nature and not feel the sting of conviction, but feel safe that you're going to heaven, that's danger. That's dangerous. I would say, Rot Royal Roy, I don't know if you passed that test. <laughs> but, but if you ask yourself that question, 
and, 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 you, and you, you recognize, you, I'm, I'm caught up in a sin cycle that's really destroying my life, that, that's making me empty, and the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction, then you know what? You're probably saved. You're just caught up in a sin cycle that you need to be delivered from. Does that make sense? You know, because Christ came to set us free from sin, and if we're walking in sin, we can't enjoy it. A believer never enjoys their sin. They're, they're, it's miserable. The most miserable person on the planet is a sinning believer. A, a, an unbeliever will enjoy it. You know, one day, a week before I got saved, I drunk as a skunk, doing all the drugs. I was a happy camper. A week after I got saved, I smoked a joint. I was the most miserable person on the planet. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Do you get it? So, so take the test. I know most of you, probably 99.9% .9 of you are saved and secure. But if anyone, any spirit of darkness whispers in your ear and you know you've been born again because of the word of God is planted in your heart that Jesus sealed you by the spirit of promise, you say to the devil, I'm saved, set free, delivered, and I belong to him. But if there's even shred of doubt in your heart, if you have not trusted Christ today, let me promise you that apart from Christ, you're eternally lost. As I mentioned before, that, that we have been born dead in sin and we are objects of wrath before he awakens our heart. And if you're here, here in this message, and you haven't trusted Christ, you're here because he led you here. You're here because of a purpose that he loves you with an everlasting love and that he wants a relationship with you. He's calling you to himself. It's not by chance is what I'm saying. So today you can be born again and brought into the kingdom of God. We bow with me in prayer. If you're here today and you don't have that confident assurance, you're just not sure, just, just pray this prayer of repentance. Lord, I recognize I cannot save myself. Just tell God that. Lord, I recognize I'm not good enough or can do enough to save myself. Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe and accept that you died on the cross for me. That you paid for my sins. That you rose triumphantly from the grave. I trust you this morning as my Savior, as my sin bearer. And I accept that gift of everlasting life. And I thank you for it. If you prayed that simple prayer this morning, I'm going to ask that you slip up your hand just so I know who you are. I'm not going to call you forward, although I would like to talk to you and pray with you if, if that's you this morning. I think it's safe to assume that you're all in the faith. And so I want to encourage you to walk out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Will you stand as we bring our service to a close? Father God, I just thank you for the richness 
and the depth of the cross of Christ and what you accomplished on Calvary. I thank you, Lord, that salvation is not dependent upon me or us. It's not dependent upon our wisdom, our strength. It's not dependent on how we feel or what we do or what we don't do. I thank you that our salvation is a miracle of grace, that you awakened our hearts and brought life in us. Thank you for Holy Spirit who has sealed us. Thank you for imparting to us your divine nature. Thank you that you've given us new life. Lord, I just pray that we would walk out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who works in us, both to will and work for your good pleasure. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.